unimportant unless what I say says what it, the Word says. And so we do encourage you to turn in your Bibles uh, to 1 John. We're going to be in 1 John, so we're in the back of the Bible, almost all the way in the back. Um, the letter of 1 John. I'll admit that when uh, I choose uh, books of the Bible to preach through, um, it's not as spiritual as may, you might think. It's not like the Lord gives me a word, hey, it's got to be First John. Uh, it's not like I take a survey and I go, where are you at? Where are you at right now? Where are you at? What are you thinking? What are you struggling with? Ah, First John. Don't really do that. I do think about the congregation, needs, What's going on? Where have we been? What haven't we covered yet? And things like that. But I, I don't know uh, that even if I took a survey, that we all would really be able to reflect what we really need at any given time. As a preacher, sometimes I'm preparing a passage and I'm like, I think we know this already. I, I think we already know this. But then you find out about somebody who walks away from the faith. Did they really know it? Find out about somebody struggling and having questions about Christianity, and you're like, those questions are Christianity 101, brother. Doubting it now? I think oftentimes we see the struggles that we have in life as disconnected from the basics of the faith. In other words, we learn things about God, we learn things about Christianity, and then we kind of move on from them into other things. And those basics that collect dust, oftentimes that, that's to our detriment. And that, that can hurt us. First John is a challenging book to preach for several reasons. Uh, but one of those is it's just very basic. I, I don't think we're going to be completely blown away. Probably most of us. We're, we're not going to encounter verses that just shock us. Oh, I, I had no idea that was there. It's a familiar book. If you've ever read the Gospel of John, it, it very much recaps what you've already learned in the Gospel of John. It's also very cyclical. He has a few themes, and he just returns to them over and over and over again. So if I'm a little repetitive through the series, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying to walk with John right in his letter. He keeps cycling back uh, to things. Um, tradition has it. I don't know if it's true. It's not from Scripture, but tradition has it that in his older years, the last surviving apostle, John would show up to church and all he would be able to mutter in his frail, weak state as an old, battered man was little children love one another. And somebody asked him, why, why do you always say that? You never say anything else. That's all you say. He says, because if you've got that, you've got everything. Uh, I don't know if that story is true, but when you read the letter, he says certain things over and over and over again. And it's relevant to you. It's important to you for you to hear this message. But it's not an important message if it's not a real message. If, if, you know, if I stood up here and just opened up Lord of the Rings and just, let's read a passage today. You know, today uh, they're going to hike the mountain you know, the mountain pass, or if we opened up C.S. Lewis or something, you know, the magician's nephew, just has us read a chapter. 
It could be real, it couldn't be real. The only thing that matters is how you feel about it, right? But what Scripture makes here is if, if it's not real, that doesn't really provide any hope for you at all. And so John, one thing I love about this letter, he doesn't have a greeting, he doesn't say who it's to, who it's by, who it's from, where he's at, his situation. He just gets right to it. Let's read the first four verses. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You feel like you have complete joy this morning? When you feel lack of joy, what do you really turn to? What's at the bedrock? What really provides joy in your life? It sounds so sort of religious to say well my joy is in the lord but that does does that bite into reality for you does it change how you wake up does it change how you handle disappointments does it change how you think about matters of life and death disease politics well if, if it's not real to you then the joy won't be real Look at how he emphasizes, just in the first three verses, how real this is. That which was from the beginning is Jesus, who is the life, right? At the end of verse 1, concerning a message about this life, the word, or the speech about this life. Who is this life who is from the beginning? Who is this life who has been made manifest? Who is this life who is with the Father? Who is this life that has been made manifest to the apostles that now they proclaim. Well, at the end of verse 3, it's His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the life. And so John is saying, we've seen this life. You know, it, th this is not uh, a man who said he got gold plates handed to him on the top of a mountain came down and was like, trust me, they're gold plates. Where are the gold plates? I don't know, I lost them. Or whatever the story is, right? We've seen him with our eyes verse one we looked upon him we touched him with our hands we've heard him the beginning of verse one that's how the life was made manifest it wasn't in a dream it wasn't a vision it wasn't a hallucination jesus was a real person walking talking eating having conversations and all of their senses beheld him they heard him talk they saw him with their eyes. They touched him. Jesus was made manifest to them, meaning Jesus is real. And we've seen it, verse 2. We've seen it, and we testify to you something we've seen. We testify to you something that is real. We proclaim something real to you. Again, at the end of verse 2, he was made manifest to us so that what we've seen and heard we proclaim to you. Why is it so important that the apostle proclaims something that is true, that is real? Why is that so important? 
Because if it's not real, then you can't have fellowship with God. That's why he says, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. Not just a Christian fellowship, not just a fellowship where you come and show up and become a part of a group, but that that fellowship indeed is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's not to leave out the Holy Spirit, but I think he's channeling John 17 where Jesus is praying to the Father and Jesus is basically saying in that prayer, Father, this unity that we have, I pray that others, those who believe, will enjoy unity with us the way we enjoy unity with each other. So, if this message is real, then you too can have real fellowship with God. If the message isn't real, then there is no fellowship to be had. But it is real. He emphasizes over and over this is real, and so you can have real fellowship with God. What's the big deal with having fellowship with God? Well, the big deal is that if you don't have fellowship with God, you'll never have complete joy. I mean, if you're, if you're in here this morning and you're like, ah, what? when is this going to get relevant? <laughs> Do you have perfect joy? Then it's relevant. Because the answer isn't filling your cabinet full of medications. The answer isn't Netflix binge. The answer isn't get some better friends. Those are things we have to grapple with and, and those aren't necessarily wrong. That can't be the bedrock foundation of joy for you. For complete joy, total joy, you need fellowship with God. That means the cause of all of your problems ultimately is disconnection from God. And everything was perfect in the garden until fellowship with God was broken. Every time you try to get into your garden and make something grow and it's really difficult to get it to grow, to get it to grow the way you wanted it to, the difficulty there is because of disconnection with God. Down to your gardening. When's the last time you have a cold? How many people are we missing right now that have colds? Sickness, disease, this disconnection from God that causes that. All the darkness that we experience in this world is due to a disconnection with God. It's a lack of fellowship with God. So three to four emphasize that. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why is it so important that it's proclaimed? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And some of us have unbelieving friends and they're struggling and we give them the same answers that the world gives them. Maybe because we're ashamed about the gospel. Maybe because we don't feel like fellowship with God is really the answer. It just sounds too religious. But John's saying, I have a burden to proclaim this to you because if I don't proclaim this to you, you will not have fellowship with God. And if you don't have fellowship with God, your joy won't be complete. So when he says uh, our joy, your joy, some translations say your joy, it can go either way. I think it's both. If we step into this joyful fellowship, we have that fellowship with the apostles, with other believers that we enjoy with the Father and with the Son. But you can't have that joy without that fellowship. And the reason why this message is important is because we don't have that fellowship. You're not born into that fellowship. You don't just waltz into that fellowship. We cannot have that fellowship with God. 
And so he says in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Here's the message. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He is pure light, and there is no darkness in him. In verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. While we walk in darkness, we're liars. We lie and we don't practice the truth. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, none. And so some of us might measure ourselves against other people. I'm not as dark as that person, but before a, a pure, a God of pure light, we don't have fellowship. If we say we have fellowship while we walk in darkness, we're liars. Well, the problem is we all walk in darkness. We're all disconnected from fellowship with God. You're not born into it. It doesn't just happen. So we need that gap resolved. All the darkness we experience in this world, in this world is because of a lack of fellowship with God. And we need to accomplish that fellowship. We need that fellowship to have joy. And there's only one way to have it. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Well, how in the world do you do that? How in the world can you walk in the light? Well, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. He returns to that, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So he keeps going back, between, back and forth between the need to confess that we're not in light, that we are in darkness, that we do sin, and then the promise that he is able to cleanse us from the sin that we have. So we can have fellowship with God through the work of Christ. It's what Christ accomplishes through his blood. You see it there in verse 7. If we walk in light, if we walk in the light as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, so we can have that fellowship. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Why the blood of Jesus? Well, because blood means life, and his life was spilled out, so now you can have life. It's a substitution. It takes care of that punishment, that condemnation for our walking in the darkness. And it's through that blood that we have fellowship with the Father. Now here's, here's what's key and what I want to spend a few moments on. If the doorway to fellowship with God is blood, stepping through the doorway is confession. That's why he says... You have to start by not denying. So here's the negative side of confession. Stop denying that, oh, my darkness, I don't really have darkness. Stop doing that. That's like saying that you're not walking in darkness, which would be a lie in verse 6. Then he says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now some people you'll meet, and they'll tell you straight to your face, no, I don't think I have sin. I've had those conversations. No, I'm not, not me. Other people, not me. 
Other of us would verbally assent to it, but not really agree that we have sinned. And so when we get to the point where we stop denying it, verse 10, if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That leads to our confession, a true confession. Someone can confess verbally. Say a spiritual prayer. Father, I have sinned. I pray that you would cover my blah, 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 blah. And then just like it's abracadabra. You say the magic words, and then you're in. You're fixed. You're cured. Because you said the code word. That's not what he means. What he means is a confession where you fully agree with God about your sin. Now understand how this works. There are things all of us would agree. Yeah, that's bad. You know, murdering somebody for, for no reason. You know, like, yeah, that's bad. Abusing a child. Yeah, that's bad. But see, as culture shifts and the pressure is put on the church to agree with culture that certain things really aren't sin, now you've got a decision to make. We all agree with God about some sins. Do you agree with God about all sin? Are there certain sins in the Bible that you're embarrassed about? Things that the Bible calls sin that you're embarrassed about? Do you, do you talk to people like, you know, if I were God, I wouldn't call that a sin, but he says it's sin. I'm sorry. Ugh. Is that really agreeing with God? Or are you just going, I don't know, he's God, and, and his wisdom, I don't know, I don't want to cross God, so I have to say it's sin. But I'm only saying it's sin because I have to say it's sin because in the Bible, but I don't really agree with it. I think that's a problem. I think that's a problem. If we're so shaded by our culture that we have a hard time understanding why something is sin, it might take work. I get that. I've got to do that too. I think there are some things that the Bible says it and we're like, ah, I don't know, I don't really agree with that because I know a guy that does that and he seems really nice. Yeah, that guy is lost in darkness. And if you don't see it as darkness, you won't see it as danger. And if you don't see it as danger, how in the world are you going to proclaim this message to that person? You don't get to choose which sins you agree with God about. Right? We have certain ugly sins in our minds and we read that, we're like, yeah, if somebody says they're not a sinner and they do that, they're a liar. But there are some things where we go, yeah, if somebody says they're not a sinner, but it's just that, I wouldn't say it's a lie. I'll just say they struggle with something or calls it sin. Now, there are some things that Christians disagree about whether it's sin or not. But the things that the Bible is clear on, even if it completely runs against the grain of culture, well, you've, you've got you've to teach your kids this, parents. The normalization of sin has now become the indoctrination of sin. So it's not enough for you to tolerate it. You've got to swallow it and affirm it. Or we've got a problem with you. But the Bible calls certain things sin, and they're not sin because God is being picky. They're sinful because it's dark, and if we don't see it as dark, that's because we've got a problem. If it's darkness, it's dangerous. 
Because darkness means lack of fellowship with God. And if we affirm things that belong to darkness, we are affirming that disconnection from God. And we can't connect people into fellowship with God if we affirm the things that disconnect them from God. And that goes for ourselves. The things in our own lives that we excuse because we think they're petty, it's sort of petty of God to get mad at that. And so we don't kill it. We don't kill it because we're like, eh, it's not a big deal. Certain sins, we're like, whoa, that's a big deal. And then other things, maybe we shrug it off. Yeah, the Bible has some things to say about it, but everybody does it. You wouldn't survive in my workplace if you had that standard. Is it sin? Yes or no? Because if it is, it's darkness. And it's a problem. It separates people from God. And we've got no hope to offer this world if we just agree with the world about sin rather than agreeing with God about sin. That's not a popular message. It's difficult. But in order to step through that doorway and have Jesus' blood apply to us to get that cleansing that he talks about in verse 7, it takes confession that agrees 100% with God about the confession so that we don't make him a liar. Verse 10. For his word to really be in us, we agree with his word completely. We don't take a portion of his word and then get embarrassed about the other portion. We take the whole thing. And even if we don't understand it, we understand it's beautiful. I just haven't quite seen the beauty in it yet. I'm so marred. I'm so used to the darkness. I don't see the beauty of the light in that truth. So if the doorway to fellowship with God is the blood of Jesus Christ stepping through that doorway is not just a verbal confession. It's not just saying magic words. It's not even getting dunked in water. I have to admit, there's some people I've dunked in the water And then the life on the other side of that baptism doesn't match up. Why? Because the water doesn't save you. That's why. It's not magic water. We didn't do anything to it. We poured it from the sink. It's what it represents. An inner life change. An inner life change that can only happen with real confession. And real confession means that as you discover the Bible calls things sin, you agree with God about those things. The things that break God's heart, break your heart. The things that anger God, anger you. The things that are an abhorrence to God are an abhorrence to you. Not some of them. All of them. And when culture puts you in a corner to choose between them, you you choose God's word. You choose God's word. I was watching a debate between someone who was uh, against so-called homosexual marriage and then someone who was for it. The someone who was against so-called homosexual marriage uh, was asked, what's the problem? And to my disappointment, he couldn't name what the problem was except God says it's sin. That's it. It's not very hard to poke around and do light Google-level research to find out the detrimental effects of the homosexual lifestyle. Go look it up. You don't need to be a Christian to see it. Disease, death, suicide, depression, 
the inability to remain monogamous. Go look it up yourself. It's not like it's from Christian resources. In other words, the things that God says are bad aren't just arbitrarily bad. It's darkness that corrupts and destroys. All of it does. All of it does. Culture will tell you, you just got to let people be. As you see where culture goes, uh, culture can't even agree with itself. The whole transgender movement, gay people resent that. They resent the transgender movement. Because now, if a little child feels effeminate, rather than affirming, one group wants to affirm gayness in the child, the other group wants to affirm, no, not gayness, wrong, right gender in the wrong body. Well, if you feel effeminate and you're in, the, in a boy's body, the transgenders are going to claim one thing to do about it. Take them to the surgery room. But the gay group goes, no, not surgery. Same-sex attraction, which you can't have if the person's actually a boy or a girl. The, the, as the crazier it gets, the less agreement there is between those that want to tolerate everything. If you tolerate everything, you're going to come to a point where you realize there's some contradictions here. We have a message of hope. And the message is not accommodation to the darkness. The message is accommodation to the light. Well, how do we accommodate to the light? Well, it's not through legislation. It's not through legislation. It's not by having the right person in office. It's by introducing people to this message that we're supposed to proclaim, this message of the word, this message of life, the life that was made manifest. Why was he made manifest in the flesh so that you can see him and touch him and behold him in front of you? Why was he here manifested in the flesh so that he could spill blood? That's why. And it's through his blood that we have any hope whatsoever. It's interesting. This is an often quoted verse. I'm not sure if this has ever struck you before. When he says in verse 9, if we confess our sins, and I just want to reiterate, it's not just writing something down on a prayer card. It's a complete, total agreement with God about our sins. But if we confess like that, that kind of confession that's driven by faith, then God is, what does God do? Well, he forgives us our sins and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. How much of the unrighteousness does he cleanse? All of it. Wow. But what I want you to notice is the kind of God that accomplishes that. What is God like such that he'll forgive and cleanse? He's faithful and just. Have you ever noticed that? He's faithful and just. We kind of, when I've memorized that verse, I've kind of rushed past it. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The emphasis falls on what he offers you, right? But the kind of God that offers it, that's interesting. He's faithful and just, and that's why he can cleanse. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means he's faithful to his covenant promises. He's promised this arrangement with Christ, and he's not going to back off on the promise. As you read through the Bible, he makes covenant promises, and he fulfills those promises to his covenant people. 
Why just? Faithful and just. It almost seems unjust, doesn't it? Somebody sinned, and God just cleanses it like it didn't happen. Well, that's not what it means. That would be unjust. Wickedness has to be paid for. Darkness has to be paid for. The reason why God is just to forgive and just to cleanse is because Jesus' blood paid for it, and it would be unjust of God to not give what's been paid for. So, in your dealings, you have something you want to buy, you pay for it in full, and then the person withholds it from you. Nah, you need another payment. What are you talking about? We agreed to this payment. Yeah, but I changed my mind. It's not enough. That's wrong, right? So for God to send Jesus to the cross to pay for sin, John is telling us, no matter how bad you've been, no matter what you've done, if God withholds forgiveness from you when you confess and cling to Christ's blood, it would be unjust for God to hold anything against you. And he's a just God. That means he will not hold condemnation over you if you're in Christ Jesus. His blood is effective. Jesus' blood doesn't offer a hope of hopefully making it, but it offers a real protection from just condemnation. So this message cuts both ways, doesn't it? On the one hand, you have a person who's unwilling to recognize that they're sinful. You have a person who's unwilling to bow before the message of repentance. They're stiff-necked. They think they're pretty good. They're good enough. They don't agree with the Bible about certain sins, about some of their own stuff. That person needs to hear the message, God is light, right? God is light, and He's pure, and you do not have fellowship with Him, my friend, if you don't agree with Him. Then you've got another group of people that all they can think about is their sin. All they can think about is how unworthy they are. All they, they're stuck in, uh, they feel like their fellowship is impossible with God. No matter how much I confess, no matter how much I agree with God, there's no way. In fact, the more I agree with God, the worse I feel about myself. How can God actually walk with me? How can I have a relationship with God? Well, that person needs to hear, yes, we need to confess, but if you confess Christ, your misunderstanding is, you understand the weight of sin fully well, that's great, but what you're misunderstanding is the effectiveness of Christ's spilled blood to cover that. And so as what starts as a message of condemnation ends in a, a message of hope, doesn't it? So that when we try to convince our neighbors, our friends, our kids, our families, ourselves of sin, it's not to stay stuck under the weight of sin, but that is the only way to truly confess what we're supposed to confess. Not just that we are sinful and stuck in darkness, but that Jesus has accomplished something that actually creates a doorway to fellowship in the light. So we're not saying, okay, let me fix my life and then I'll go through the doorway. <laughs> that doesn't work. We'll always have a mixture of failure in there. I like how one author put it, that for the joy to be complete from verse 4, that joy will fully be complete in the time to come when Jesus fully rescues us from our, our situation and there's no more disease and there's no more uh, sin but I do think there's a sense in which we enjoy that 
now. When you meet a Christian who's suffering and there's no real reason to be joyful, and they still have joy. That's, that's incredible. Isn't that a miracle? Yes, it's a miracle afforded by the transformation that is available in Jesus Christ. So in order to have true fellowship with God, true fellowship comes on the other side of total confession. Total confession that leads to total cleansing. That's why when we do confession and assurance, we don't just do the confession part and then assurance some other week. Right? They have to go together. If you truly confess, you get assurance. Confession and assurance. If you're in here this morning and you're not sure, you're not sure if you're saved, you should be sure. You should be sure. If you trust that what God says about sin is 100% accurate and that what he's done to deal with that sin is 100% effective, you should cling to the assurance that's offered to you in Jesus Christ. If you don't 100% agree about sin, you've got a problem. And if you don't 100% agree about the effectiveness of the cross, that's also a problem. That will lead to spiritual despair. How do we get to spiritual hope, joy that's complete, full and not partial. 100% agreement with God about what he says is wrong and 100% agreement with God that the cross is effective to cover all of it. All of it. So take all of it and bring it to the cross. If that's you this morning, I want you to do that today. I'm not going to make you walk down an aisle. I want you to approach myself, someone wearing a green lanyard. Just a few moments ago, we had the elders up here, the deacons, approach one of them someone on the worship team, just say, I'm not sure, I need assurance, and we'll have that conversation. I'm not going to give you magic words to say, but I do want to walk you through what it means to cling to that hope that we can only have in Jesus Christ. The rest of us, I want to encourage you that we have this message for a dark world. And part of the reason why as soon as you give your life to Christ, or he, he captures you, however you want to word it, as soon as that conversion happens, you're not just snatched out of this world. It's because part of the reason why you still belong in this world is to be a light to the world. We're salt and light in this place that's dark. And the only way to do that effectively is to agree with God about the message and to truly understand our testimonies. If someone asks you your testimony, what does your testimony sound like? I was at a camp and the song is really cool, the fire was crackling, the stars are beautiful. I said a prayer. A lot of those things we find out don't last because when it gets difficult and persecution comes on account of the word, we can shrivel and die. The only way you survive as a Christian is 100% agreement with God about sin and 100% agreement with God about the effectiveness of the atonement that covers all sin. Let's pray.